Next week, we're going to be beginning a series on the book of Isaiah, and so we'll jump into that next week. But today, we're going to be looking to see what the Bible has to say about the topic of suffering, and particularly suffering in the lives of believers. Now, we're going to introduce the topic today with a, a song that is written by a group called Shane and Shane, um, but today it's going to be played by David. I didn't know if it was going to be David and David or just David, but it's David, so it's David Elmer. But before David begins, let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, um, I thank you that you give us the ability to suffer. You give us the freedom to suffer. You give us the freedom to complain. You give us the freedom um, to mourn and to grieve and to weep, but you give us the ability to do all of that with hope, Father. And so if I, I pray that our hope would be in the fact that you love us, uh, that you're making us into something beautiful, that you have amazingly joined into our suffering with us in the person of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability today to really enter in and to embrace the suffering that comes into our lives, knowing that you're sovereign and you're good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hopefully that song will echo in your head um, as you walk around today, maybe even past today and, and uh, even into this week. Suffering is an inevitable reality in life. It just is. Some people get less of it and some people get more. Some people's suffering is like an ultra marathon and seems to last forever, while other people's suffering feels more like a 50-yard dash and is over relatively quickly. Some people experience suffering early on in life, and others don't experience suffering until much, much later on. Some people's suffering is merely physical, and other people's suffering is relational and emotional, it's psychological, but every bit of suffering is excruciating, and most of you or many of you know that. Suffering inevitably forces us to ask questions. Did I do something to deserve this? Why me? Why not them? I remember after being diagnosed with cancer, watching a, an NBA basketball game, and they were doing an interview that was sort of up in the stands, and there were all these people in the stands that were older and younger and in good shape and not in so great shape, and I remember this thought popping into my head, why not, why not one of them? Why me? Suffering is also inevitably going to lead us to respond to those questions in one way or another. For the purely secular person, one answer can be that stuff just happens, and then you die. That's, that's the answer. Without any transcendent reality, finding meaning in suffering, it's not even an option. For a religious person, an answer might be, God is surely punishing me for some sin. Some people, when they suffer, will formally or maybe less formally state the following theorem. They'll think this or say this. They'll think, either God is good, but he surely isn't all-powerful, because if he were both, then he wouldn't allow suffering. Or, they think, God may be all-powerful, but he's not good, because if he were both, then he again would get rid of the suffering, but instead I'm left with the option of believing that he's some form of cosmic bully. So either way, they think, the loving, all-powerful God of the Bible surely doesn't exist. Some people, again, either religious or irreligious, will respond through avoiding rather than engaging their pain. They might avoid through food, guilty, or alcohol, 
or through extreme exercise or maybe by binge-watching Netflix. They might also avoid suffering by offering platitudes like, God is good, or, again, a secular platitude might be, it just is what it is. Again, people secular or religious may respond not by avoiding pain, but rather by raging against the cosmos or raging against the one who hurt them or raging against God. And in that case, suffering can create anger and bitterness and resentment, and it can turn these people's hearts dark and twisted and cold. We began this morning with David singing the song, Though You Slay Me. The lyrics are based in the book of Job, which probably many of you are familiar with. The onus for the song, however, was much more personal. The author of the song, Shane Barnard, was on tour when he was awakened one morning with a text from his mom informing him that his dad had had a heart attack the night before and that his father was in the hospital on life support. Barnard immediately flew home and arrived in time to spend the next 24 hours with his mom and with his unconscious father. Later that day, he was standing in the hospital room with his mother when the doctor came in and informed them that his father had passed away. Barnard said that he held his mom as she wept and as she physically pounded her fists on the chest of her dead husband. Barnard recounts pulling his mom off of his father and holding her as she grieved. But then he said something actually beautiful happened as he held his mother. He said in her tears she mourned the following words, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He said at that moment, the room was filled with pain, but it was also filled with joy. Those words were taken from the first chapter of Job after he had experienced what can only be called legendary suffering. Verses 20 and 21 read as follows, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Barnard then went on to write the song based not only upon verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, but also based upon Job 13, 15, which says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Clearly, there's something unique about the Christian's faith in God that allows us to grieve and to mourn, but also allows us to worship and to have hope at precisely the same time. Of course, those truths and the ability to do so are rooted firmly in Scripture. So what does the Bible have to say about suffering in the lives of believers? How should we respond? The answer is, unfortunately, there's far, far more in Scripture than I can possibly say today. So I'm going to leave out most of the things that the Bible actually talks about in regards to suffering in the lives of believers. But I'm going to focus on one thing and one truth, and that one truth is this, that perhaps the truest thing we can say about suffering in the lives of believers is that suffering produces sanctification. That suffering produces sanctification. Look at John 15, verses 1 and 2. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will bear more fruit. About 
15, 16 years ago, I got to go to India for a couple of weeks, and part of what I got to do along with the teaching team is speak at a pastor's conference. The group of pastors that I happened to be speaking to were a part of a house church movement, and so most of them were very, very committed Christian believers, but they were almost untrained theologically. One of the passages that we looked at during that conference was John chapter 15, this very passage which many of us know as Jesus teaching on the vine and the branches. When we came to the section I just read, I made the point that often growth, often growth, maybe always growth, involves suffering. And I asked them where suffering comes from in the life of believers, and they all answered over and over again, Satan. And of course, that's partially true. But then I had them look back at verse 2, and I asked them in this story, who is the vine dresser? Who's the gardener? And of course, they answered correctly that it was God. I then asked, what is he doing? And they answered again correctly that God was pruning the branches. That sounds a lot like suffering to me. Looking at scripture, it seems to be God who is actively causing suffering at times in the same way that a doctor or a coach will sometimes cause suffering. In his book, A Grief Observed, that C.S. Lewis wrote after his wife passed away, Lewis famously wrote the following, what do people say, or what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? He goes on to elaborate in mere Christianity. He says this, when I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. An L is a fabric me measurement of 45 inches. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin in which they're ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for, nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect until my father can say without reservation that he is well-pleased with you, as he said he was well-pleased with me. This I can do and will do 
but I will not do anything less. So what C.S. Lewis is accurately pointing out there is that God is like a good parent who loves their child too much to allow her teeth to rot. God is like a good doctor who gives the shot and who cuts out the tumor in order that we might survive. My son Sam, who is in the military, loved his drill instructor precisely because he knew that his drill instructor was trying to shape and to mold him into a better human being. Now, all of this doesn't mean for an instant that suffering isn't painful, but it also doesn't mean that God isn't good. In fact, it may mean precisely the opposite. Perhaps the question that we should be asking is, where is God at work in me? Where is God at work in me and why? Sometimes we experience suffering because God is actively and directly at work in us. But sometimes we experience suffering due to our own decisions. We suffer because we make choices that logically lead us to the pain that we're now experiencing. We and our family, the Pierce household, almost never eat junk food in the home. Uh, So a few years ago when Krista and the kids were out of town, I went to the store and I got a family-sized bag of Cheetos and I got a Coke and a glass bottle and I sat down to watch the movie The Last Samurai. About a third of the way through the movie and about half of the way through the bag of Cheetos, I realized that I had made a tactical error. That is the last time that I pulled something like that. God could have intervened and he could have kept me from that mistake, but he didn't. And I learned my lesson, at least about Cheetos. God allowed my foolish decision, even though it led to my suffering. Now I just do a fun size bag. If only our foolish decisions were as benign as junk food binges. The pain and suffering caused by pornography is much, much greater, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those that we love. The suffering caused by gossip and by slander and by dishonesty causes massive relational destruction, and it ends up in isolation. Few things tear the fabric of our hearts and our society more than the betrayal of infidelity. And yet God, in his providence, bestows upon each of us the responsibility of choosing flourishing or choosing chaos and the life or the pain that comes from each. At other times, we see that Satan is actually involved in our suffering. That's part of the point of the story of Job. Satan comes before God and asks permission to bring suffering into Job's life, accusing Job of being faithful to God only because of God's good gifts and faithfulness to him. God then permits Satan to infuse chaos into Job's life. And of course, what we see is Job suffering mightily. But at the end of chapter one, Job remains faithful, proclaiming, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Elsewhere, the apostle Paul and Peter both affirm this dynamic of God allowing Satan to cause suffering even in the lives of believers for the purpose of sanctifying them. In other words, what Satan intends for evil, God ends up using for good. It's spiritual judo, 
if you will, where the force of the opponent is actually used against him. J.R.R. Tolkien captures this idea beautifully in his book, The Silmarillion, where he poetically tells this story of Satan attempting three times to corrupt God's creative act by infusing discord. But each time, God takes that evil dissonance and he weaves it into his creation and into the story of humanity to make it even more beautiful. We don't always know when suffering is coming from our own sin or when it's coming from the hand of God or when suffering is the result of Satan's malice. But as children of God, we do know that God's purpose for suffering in our lives is to make us beautiful. God's suffering per, per, purpose for suffering in our lives is to make us more human. It's to make us more like his son, Jesus. That's why Paul could write in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What Paul says here is not that all things are good, but rather that all things work together for the good of God's children. That's been the consensus of theologians and Christian thinkers since the very beginning of God's revelation of himself to humanity. This idea is so integral to Christianity that C.S. Lewis included it in his book, Mere Christianity, a summary of the basic truths of Christianity. In it, Lewis writes this, when a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When trouble comes along, illness, money troubles, new kinds of temptations, he's disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he's ever dreamed of being before. Just wait till you get married. Just wait till you have children. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing that he means to make of us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Most of you know that there's much, much, much more to say on the topic of suffering. Sometimes the sufferer very clearly sees the purpose of suffering in their life, like in the story of Joseph, where God reveals it to him. 
At other times, we suffer and we don't ever know exactly what God was up to or why we suffered. The book of Job ends with God speaking to his suffering servant, but God's answer isn't to tell him why, but rather instead is to invite Job to trust him ever more deeply. Throughout all of Scripture, however, we see that God does not leave us alone in our pain. He doesn't leave us alone in our suffering, but instead he's with us in every moment. That's the message of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Jesus was with Mary, and he wept with her. The angel of the Lord walked with Elijah in the wilderness when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace for refusing to worship the golden idol, God stood with them in the flames. In Jesus, the God of the universe wrote himself into his own story, into your story, not only to save you, to save us, but to suffer with us, to enter into and to know and to experience our pain. This enables us to say and to pray and to sing, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful truth that your word gives us, that we are not alone in our suffering, that you're with us, that Jesus physically entered into the suffering of humanity in order to not only know intellectually, but to know experientially the pain that we suffer. Father, I thank you that your word not only gives us the comfort of knowing that you're with us in our pain, but the knowledge that the suffering that enters into our life, whatever the cause, whatever the reason, that you, like a master artist, like a great storyteller, you are able to weave all of our suffering and all of our pain into our story to make us more human, to make us more like your son, Jesus, Father. And therefore, I pray that we would indeed have hope. I pray that you would enable us to continue to sing and to worship you, though you do give and take away. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things today. Amen.